Well, good morning. Happy Father's Day. It's that, that grand day when fathers are honored and revered and everyone treats you nicely. Uh, brothers, I would like to forewarn you, uh, Peter did not get the memo. And so day, today in 1 Peter, there's a good chance that he's going to poke you. And uh, perhaps that also is very appropriate on Father's Day. Also appropriate on Father's Day that we should begin by showing a video of a race. So, if you'll direct your attention, Father's Day. is this, right? You're thinking, what on earth? Well, the idea is, and, and was that lady wearing heels? I mean, that was stunning. But anyway, um, the idea is to go the shortest distance possible within a specified amount of time. So you saw it at the start of the race. Everybody kind of cues up at the starting line. Uh, they start it, and as best they can, they stay put. That's how the race works. Racers are disqualified if they tip over or if one foot touches the ground. So they just try to stay there, inch forward as little as possible. Um, and the person who'd gone the farthest was the loser. The person closest to the starting line is the winner. Okay. Uh, Pastor Leith Anderson writes about a race like this. He says, imagine getting into that race and not understanding how the race works. When the race starts, you pedal as hard and as fast as you possibly can. You're out of breath. You're sweating. You're delighted because the other racers are back there at the starting line. You're going to break the record, you think. This is fantastic. Don't let up. Push harder, faster, longer, stronger. And at last, you hear the gun that ends the race. You're delighted because you are unquestionably the winner. Except you're unquestionably the loser because you misunderstood how the race is run. Then he says that Jesus gives us the rules to the race of life. The finish line is painted on the other side of our deaths, right in front of the throne of God himself. And the winning strategy for this life and for all eternity is to care more about others than yourselves. It is letting others go first, not pushing to the front. It is giving without the expectation of getting in return. It is, he says, to be humble like Jesus. And so Peter begins our passage today with these words. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So last week in 1 Peter 5, we saw Peter address the leaders of the church, the elders, um, in the first few verses of chapter 5, and he said, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, 
but being examples to the flock. So today he turns, and having addressed the elders, now he addresses the youngsters, right? Likewise, you who are younger. And it's not clear here whether he means younger in age or younger in maturity. It could be simply this is the way he addresses the rest of the church who are not elders, But since those circles of age and maturity often overlap, he could have a little of both in mind. Younger in maturity, younger in age. Um, And that makes sense, especially since it wouldn't be a huge shocker to find that younger folk, say teenagers, maybe 20-somethings, struggle with submission to authority. That is what Peter is asking of us this morning. Submit to the elders of the church. The idea is to gladly support the leadership of our elders. Um, Professor Tom Schreiner puts it this way. He says, those who are under leadership should be inclined to follow and submit to their leaders. They should not be resisting the initiatives of leaders and complaining about the direction of the church. Now, of course, there are exceptions. Right away you think, but what about? Yes, there are, but what about? If the elders were to lead in a way that dishonors God, that leads you into sin, then you would not submit to that kind of leadership. But uh, let me just say, I have never known that to be the case of the elders here at Northway. I have never known them to lead in that direction. So Peter says, you should be subject to them. This can be hard for the young especially young men, and some versions of the Bible actually translate this, young men. Um, So, uh, after I'd been pastoring here at Northwake for uh, a number of years, I don't know, it's probably five or ten years, I went to a conference, and at this conference, I saw my pastor from when I was a seminary student. And uh, the first thing I did was take him aside and apologize. This is true. I apologized for being so arrogant while I was in seminary. Um, I had been, I don't doubt at all, I had been a burr in his saddle in ways that I now regretted. So the call to humble submission can be hard for the young, perhaps especially young men. It can also honestly be hard for people who are accustomed to leading outside of the church. Business owners, entrepreneurs. And folk like that. Because likely one of the reasons you run your own business, you do your own thing, is that you don't just love having a boss. Okay? Chances are you are better at, what, at being boss than your boss was, at least in your own mind. That's how you think about it. Um, See, this is exactly why Peter's command to be supportive of, to be subject to the elders of the church, is so very good for you. It teaches you to be humble. And that is where Peter's going with this. Um, But before we look any further at at what Peter's going to say about humility, uh, let me pull up a verse, I think we looked at it last week in Hebrews. It says, obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. 
So um, I'm driving home this week from work, and I hear a radio uh, program, some, some Christian station, and I recognize the voice. It's, uh, it's Pastor J.D. Greer from Durham. And I thought, I know J.D. Greer. I'll, I'm going to listen to this. So I listen, and it it's ends up not being a, um, a sermon of his they're broadcasting, but the radio host was dissecting one of his sermons because he disagreed with it. So he'd play a phrase and then explain why Pastor J.D. was wrong and why he, the radio host, was right. Now, if I understand it rightly, and t- um, just in defense of our local radio host, I listened to about five minutes of this. I don't know the guy, but he indicated that Pastor J.D. was his pastor. And so he was taking one of his pastor's sermons on the radio and dissecting it to show how he disagreed with it and how his pastor was wrong. Um, if you have a radio show, okay. <laughs> just saying, do me a favor, talk to me first, right? Don't. If you have a blog, just saying, is that really the best way to be subject to your elders? And again, I don't know the, I don't know the whole deal. I listen to five minutes of it. You know, I wonder if Pastor J.D., when he heard that, did he smile or did he groan? And so this is a question for you this morning. Are you a joy to be led? When the elders think of you, do they smile or do they groan? Maybe just a little bit. So Peter says, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Clothe yourselves with humility. Wear this stuff like a garment, right? Everywhere you go. You know, people have this recurring dream. It's a nightmare where you go to like your final exam or maybe a job interview and like you forgot your pants have you, have you ever heard that dream maybe had that nightmare you you show up somewhere something really important um, see the Christian's nightmare is to show up at home after work or at school or at a friend's house or anywhere you go without being clothed in humility bosses parents elders Don't get a pass on this. Peter says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. Humility is how we treat one another in every relationship that we have. It's what it means to follow Jesus. Humility, it's the virtue that gives shape to love. And then Peter gives us some pretty stout motivation. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So just to be clear, if you are proud, you will be opposed by God. And if that doesn't stop you in your tracks and bring you to your knees, I'm not sure what will. 
Maybe an additional dose of the wisdom of Proverbs, which makes it even more in your face. Proverbs 8 says, Pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. God hates pride and arrogance. You can always mix in a little Jeremiah to drive the point home even more. Jeremiah says, Behold, I am against you, O proud one, declares the Lord of hosts. So likewise, you are, who are younger, be subject to the elders and clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He has favor upon the humble. It's a pretty stark choice, right? You can either be opposed by God or you can have his favor upon your life. Peter, he's not, he's not done with the whole humility thing just yet. He goes on in verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. So now he promises us that at the proper time, and there's a good chance that what he means is when we stand before him at the end of our days or at the return of Christ, that at that time we will be exalted by God. He says, humble yourselves under God's mighty hand. Trust that that hand will care for you and be good to you. Humble yourselves. Professor Karen Jobes gives this description of humbling yourself. She says, to be humbled implies a decision to remain faithful to Christ, even knowing that humiliation will result. To be humbled implies a decision to remain faithful to Christ, even knowing that humiliation will result. The Apostle Paul famously writes, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant or more important than yourselves. Let each of you not look only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So we take the low place now, trusting that God will honor that, that his pleasure will be upon us now and especially in that day. And then Peter, he says something interesting. He says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. One of the ways, Peter says, we humble ourselves is to cast our anxieties, our worries, our troubles, our cares upon our God. And that that connects to humility in a couple of ways. Um, One, it means I won't be trying to handle those troubles on my own anymore. Casting them on God means trusting him to take care of them. It says to God, I need you. I cannot bear this trouble without you. The psalmist says, call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you will glorify me. It also means that we trust, we believe that God cares for me. I humbly trust him to care for even me and my troubles. And the cross is the great foundation of our trust in God's care for us. For God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And Peter here is echoing the teaching of Jesus. Jesus says, therefore I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, 
about what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And, and the main way that we cast our cares on God is through prayer. Paul, Paul says, don't be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And this often requires ceaseless prayer because, because our troubles stalk us so. So we simply say in prayer, Father, I trust you to be good to me and care for me in this time of trouble. I trust you. I need you. I trust you. Here's a fuller example. It's from someone who's single. I think its perspective is really good. So it's a little bit long, but I'd like to quote it for you. Father, my daily responsibilities and my feelings of inferiority, failure, guilt, and condemnation have overwhelmed me like a burden too heavy to bear. Hear me and answer me. My thoughts trouble me. I am distraught. Living as a single person is not easy and anxiety continues to build as I see friends getting married. I am tired of feeling so alone. I know that I should seek first all your kingdom, but a need to be married is becoming an obsession, a burden that grows heavier and depression is intensifying. In the name of Jesus, I make the decision to cast my cares on you, my Lord, knowing that you will sustain me. You will never let the righteous fall. Lord Jesus, your yoke is easy, your burden is light. I will learn from you who walk this earth as a single person. You were tempted in all points, even as I am, yet you were without sin. When anxiety is great within me, your consolation brings joy to my soul. You have strengthened me in my innermost being, and I resist the temptation to worry about my life, what I'll eat or drink, or about my body, what I will wear. Life is more important than food, and the body more important than clothes. You are my heavenly Father, who knows that I need these things. Therefore, I will seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, confident that all these things will be given to me as well. So I'm learning to be content with who I am and will not put on airs. God, your strong hand is on me. You will promote me at the right time. Thank you for giving me the grace to cast all my cares and anxieties on you. I purpose to live carefree before you, my Lord and my God. You are most careful with me. In Jesus' name I pray. Now, did you notice... There's a reason that I wanted to read that for you. Did you notice what they did? Did the language sound familiar? They're just praying scripture back to God, especially the promises of God, back to him. Humble yourself by not trying to take care of your worries and cares in your own strength. In humility, cast those cares unto the Lord in prayer because he cares for you. Now, Peter's focus shifts a little bit in these last few verses as the letter draws to a close. In verse 8, he says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Peter is warning us, we actually have an adversary called the devil who would devour us. Ran across a fascinating interview with uh, a former 
Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia with New York Magazine. And in that interview, he mentions that he believes in a real heaven and a real hell. And you can tell by what follows that the interviewer must have been shocked. Because he says, then he interjects, I even believe in the devil. And she says, you do? He says, of course. He's a real person. She says, isn't it terribly frightening to believe in the devil? And he says, you're looking at me as though I'm weird. My God, are you so out of touch with most of America, most of which believes in the devil? I mean, Jesus Christ believed in the devil. It's in the Gospels. You travel in circles that are so, so removed from mainstream America that you're appalled that anybody would believe in the devil. Most of mankind has believed in the devil for all of history. Many more intelligent people than you or me have believed in the devil. Go get them, Justice Scalia, right? <laughs> you know, about half to two-thirds of Americans believe in, in Satan or would agree with Justice Scalia about a devil. Peter wants us all to believe that truth and be on our guard lest he devour us like a roaring lion. You know, Peter's choosing his imagery carefully here. About 10 years ago, uh, we had a chance, we were in, in uh, Kenya, we had a chance to go on a safari. Um, and uh, while we were on safari, our guide saw this lion under a tree. And he says, let's, let's get a little closer. So we got a little closer. And then he said, let's get even closer. And so I took that picture. I do not have one of those bazooka cameras. You could see the flies on his nose. Now, what's troubling, other than the fact that we were one leap away from this guy, is that we were in this vehicle, which has no windows. <laughs> I don't know who thought of this idea. Safari vehicles with no windows, but that's how they work. And so we are, from here to, the, to Mike Basham, from this lion in the second row here, um, with no windows. We're one leap from lunch, right? His, his lunch. And so, I guarantee you, we were on our guard. I don't know what we would have done, but we were, we were on our, we were watching that lion. And see, in this lion, all he wanted to do was just take a nap, right? That's, that, that was the whole reason that he was under that tree. Peter says the devil is like a roaring lion on the hunt. He's hungry. He wants to devour you. By overwhelming your faith with suffering and pain and disappointment, he wants you to doubt God's goodness towards you, his love for you, his care for you. And Peter says, be sober-minded. This danger is real. Be watchful. And this idea of watchfulness has connections at points in the Bible to prayer. You remember um, in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night he was betrayed, Jesus is praying with his disciples he finds them asleep and he says why are you sleeping rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation prayer fortifies us to resist temptation it helps us be watchful and mindful of the devil's devices being deployed against us the devil's devices include tempting us to sin 
accusing us before God and making us fear our standing before God, opposing God's will, confusing our minds regarding truth, inciting acts of idolatry, um, overtly dominating people to the point of demonization. So Peter says, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And here Peter gives us a couple of other defenses against the dark arts, right, of the devil. First, stand firm in your faith. And in particular, Peter has at the forefront of his mind, it seems, what he has just said about what we are to believe. That God will give grace to the humble. That he will exalt us at the proper time. That he truly cares for us. Tom Schreiner says something really important here. He says that the call to resistance here in 1 Peter 5.9 does not summon believers to do Herculean acts on God's behalf. Believers are not encouraged to gather all their resources to do great works for God. No, resisting the devil means that believers remain firm in their faith, that is, in their trust in God. So we trust that God is able to protect us. Like Job, we say, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. We trust that God is willing to help us in our time of need. As Hebrews 4 says, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. We trust that God truly cares for us with an unshakable love. <clears throat> for we are sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. These promises help us stand firm in our faith. Which is what he says we must do to resist the devil. There's a second defense there that he mentions in verse 9. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So the sufferings we're experiencing are not unique to us. Let me say it again. The suffering you are experiencing is not unique to you. When you suffer... It's easy to think that you are alone in that hardship. Everyone else comes to church and they're all happy and smiley and well-dressed. And you could barely drag yourself here. You begin to wonder if God really cares about you. If your faith is genuine. Because no one else seems to have troubles like you do. First, you need to understand now, for better or for worse, much of what we put on on Sunday mornings is fake. Okay? Trust me. I know these people. Uh, they look way more together than they are. Okay? Let's, just, let's just say it. Okay? Um, you know, the Sunday morning show can be just that. And that's why we have small groups during the week so you can let your hair down and be honest with somebody that cares about you. Okay. 
second thing you need to realize, you are not alone. Peter assures us that believers all over the world are suffering from Satan's attacks just like you. You are not being singled out. You are not being abandoned by God. You are not alone in your suffering. So Peter says, so after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So clearly, Peter is not offering to those who follow Jesus a pass on suffering. This little while he has in mind is likely little compared to eternity. It's likely this life, not this week. Okay. It is not out of the ordinary for our life in this world to be marked by suffering and hardship and the pursuit of us to be devoured by Satan. When he speaks about the eternal glory in Christ we are to share, he's envisioning the return of Christ and the transformation that awaits us then. Restoration, confirmation, strengthening, establishing our faith forever and ever. Amen. Okay. This is not a pass on suffering. This is a promise for those who suffer and endure. And Peter is saying, it's gonna be worth it. Okay. And Paul joins him. He says, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison and it comes to you by the God of all grace Peter says all grace all the grace that you will need and more that God the God of grace himself assures our future restores our weary souls I love the picture that Revelation paints where he hears a voice from the throne saying behold the dwelling place of God is with man and he will dwell with them and they will be his people, and God himself, God himself will be with them as their God. And this, Peter says, God has called us to. This is our calling, and our calling is sure. Paul says those whom he justified, he also glorified, and those are the ones that he called. So when Peter says, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Um, that God who has called us to his eternal glory, it's a sure calling. It will come to pass. We will be restored and confirmed and strengthened and established, even though we suffer now. God himself will make it so. There is a promised end to your suffering and sorrow. The God of all grace has called you to it and promised it to you. And at this point, Peter channels his inner Daniel Cruswell and he busts out in worship. This is how he closes the book, basically, except for the couple verses we'll cover next week. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Okay. Rome does not have dominion. The devil himself does not have dominion. Eternal dominion, reign and rule and power belongs to God alone. So when we suffer, and we will suffer, 
We must remember that God's hand is mighty. His grace is greater. It's greater than our sorrows, greater than the devil himself. And all of this must come from a place of humility before God and towards one another. We run a different race from those around us. Watch this example. Tim Carroll and Gary Grossman will be next. you have a couple of our elders no names just a couple of elders hey the first shall be last and the last will be first let me close with this quote from pastor john piper it helps humility is not a popular human trait in the modern world it's not touted in the talk shows or celebrated in valedictorian speeches or commended in diversity seminars or listed with core values if you go to the massive self help sections of our bookstores. You won't find any books on humility. The basic reason for this is not hard to find. Humility can only survive in the presence of God. When God goes, humility goes. In fact, you might say that humility follows God like a shadow. We can expect to find humility applauded in our society as often as we find God applauded, which means almost never. In this atmosphere, humility cannot survive. It disappears with God. And when God is neglected, the runner-up God takes his place, namely man. And that, by definition, is the opposite of humility, namely pride. So the atmosphere we breathe is hostile to humility. And this text, 1 Peter 5, is utterly foreign to our times and utterly necessary. If what is said here doesn't take root in our lives, we will not be a Christian church and we will not be salt and light for a perishing world. So as we close this morning, worship team leads us in worship. I want to use this time just to invite you, if you're mindful today of pride creeping into your soul in a way that's toxic, a way that dishonors God, a way that doesn't trust Him, um, I want to invite you just as an act of humility to take a posture of humility And during this singing, you might want to just kneel. If you've got room where you are, you can do it there. Or you can come down here to the the sacred steps, and you can have some prayer down there if you'd like. We've got elders in the front row and perhaps some of our women's ministry leaders. If you'd like somebody to pray with you while you're down here, we would love to come and just pray a short prayer that the humility of Christ would mark your souls. So let's use this time um, to worship and to respond to that which God has been saying to us. Would you stand? Let's, let's worship.